Amen. If you find your place in Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 10 in just a few minutes. And uh, before we get started, I just want to open us up in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to come before you to worship you. We just thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you that you're no longer dead, but you're alive. And because of that, we can have life. God, as we look at your word today, as we discuss these issues that are kind of sensitive issues that maybe uh, are just issues that are sometimes hard to deal with. Uh, God, I just pray that you'd uh, give me the words to say. I just pray that your word would be clear. Anything that's of you would be remembered. Anything that's not of you would be soon forgotten. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, uh, I have to admit, I'm not much of an art person. Um, in arts class when I was in school, uh, I had trouble doing stick figures um, I had trouble doing the line straight. I think they thought that I wasn't trying, but I was trying. I just didn't have it. I can appreciate some art. I haven't really gone to many art you know, shows or things like that, but I've seen some art exhibits, and when I've seen art exhibits, I see some things that are just really amazing, and you wonder how someone could do that with their hands, and it's just kind of an awe as you look at it. But there's some other pieces of art that I have to admit I I just don't get. For example, this picture on the screen here that's coming, I think. There it is. This picture is ingeniously called number six, violet, green, and red. So you can see the violet, the green, and the red. Now, if I saw this picture at a garage sale, I definitely wouldn't buy it. Um, If somebody gave it to me, I would be nice, maybe take it, but I don't really like this. I don't see much beauty in this. It seems like a piece of garbage to me. But if I threw it out, I might be throwing out something pretty valuable, seeing that it's worth about $166 million. $166 million for violet, green, and red. Now, if there's anybody here who's an art, you know, fanatic... Talk to me after the service. I want to see why that's worth $166 million. I don't get it. Today we're talking about marriage. Uh, And the truth is, when many of us think about marriage, sometimes we don't see the beauty in it. Um, I think we've all come from kind of different perspectives. Um, Some of us are happily married, and uh, we can kind of see that beauty in marriage. But increasingly in our culture, that's kind of the exception rather than the rule. I know... In in our room alone, from people that I know, probably half or more of us have been through a divorce, and we've seen the ugliness that marriage has brought out. Uh, Some of us are uh, single, we've never been married. Some of us are widowed. Um, And for those of us who are like that, maybe marriage kind of represents this unfulfilled longing in our hearts. And so when we think about marriage, we think about almost like we have an inadequacy or something like that. Others of us are married, but we're really struggling in our marriage. And so we think to ourselves, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know it was going to be like this. 
I didn't know it was going to be this difficult. And so when we look at marriage and come from it from different perspectives, maybe when we see it from the outside, we say, I don't really see the beauty in it. It seems kind of like a hunk of garbage. I mean, we know that it should be valuable. Someone, some people consider it to be valuable, but from our perspective, it seems almost worthless. So acknowledging that we come from that perspective, I'd hope to look at God's Word and try to paint a little different picture for us of what marriage is intended to be. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. And uh, before we get there, there's a few things I want to say. The first thing is that people are, like I said, people are here from different different perspectives, uh, from different walks of life. And so when we talk about the issues we're going to talk about, uh, the goal is never that we would feel condemned, that we would feel judged. Now, Satan wants to, us to feel condemned. He wants us to feel judged. He wants to look at, us to look at things in our past and say, look at what you did. Uh, you're done. You, I could, there's no way that God could use you. And he wants to kind of stop you in your tracks and keep you from going forward. That's not what God wants from you. God might convict you about things. He might challenge you on things. But his goal is that you would get better. That you would move forward. So when we talk about these things and God's intention for uh, marriage, I hope that you don't feel judged or condemned. Because that's certainly not my intention. That's certainly not God's intention. Second, for those of us here who are single, uh, no matter what the circumstances, widowed, looking for a spouse, divorced, whatnot, When you hear that we're talking about marriage, I think there's a temptation to kind of check out. Well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not married. I don't have plans of getting married anytime in the near future. And uh, if that's the case, I just challenge you and hope that you would stay engaged. First, because you might be married someday. Second, you probably know some married people who are struggling who could need your encouragement. And third, the things that we're going to talk about today, they don't just apply to marriage. We're going to look at it, and this passage applies to marriage, but the principle that we're going to draw from this, it doesn't just apply to marriage. So if you're single and you're here today, I hope that you would stay engaged. So before we get into this passage, I think we need to get a kind of a background in what marriage is. Marriage in our culture, the kind of cultural understanding of marriage is Summed up well in Webster's Dictionary, it says the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. The state of being united as spouses in a consensual and a contractual relationship recognized by law. This kind of gets to the heart of what marriage is in our culture's understanding. It's two parties. It's not necessarily one man and one woman. It could be two men. It could be two women. It's two parties that come together. And it's a contract, a contractual uh, relationship. That there's kind of a give and take, so to speak. That I give you this, you give me that. And then there's this kind of idea that if my spouse doesn't meet my needs, that I'm free to find somebody else who meets my needs better. So that's kind of our cultural view of marriage. and And we see that even in the dictionary's definition of marriage. But the difference between our cultural view of marriage and God's view of marriage is first, that in God's eyes, marriage only exists between one man and between one woman. But secondly, 
Marriage is much deeper than simply a contract. It's not simply an arrangement that's brought together in order to better order society or provide for my needs. It's not simply a legal document. Marriage is is not simply a vow before men. It's a vow before God. Biblical language, the Bible calls marriage or uh, it describes marriage as a covenant. And so we see this in the first relationship between a man and a woman. Now, we see this even in the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's two elements to marriage in the biblical understanding. There's first the vow and then an oath sign. So in this passage we see the vow. We see that Adam says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So we look at this passage and we say, who is Adam talking to? Well, he's not talking to Eve. He's not addressing her. He could be talking to himself. But most likely, he's addressing God. And when he's saying, this is my bone, bone of my bones, flesh in my flesh, it's in other words like he's saying, this is my person. This is the person that I want to be a part of me. And we see this usage in, in other passages of Scripture like 1 Samuel 5, 1-3. to And so there's this vow that we see. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is my person. And so we have these under, this understanding of this tradition of taking vows when, when people get married. And uh, when people make vows, they make vows not just before a minister or before other people, but they're also making those vows before God. And so I think that's kind of, a, kind of an easy understanding of what marriage is, uh, that vow, and that's kind of... That vow is signified by a legal document, but there's also what's called an oath sign. It's called a, in Scripture a ratifying oath sign. Now, a ratifying oath sign is kind of a symbol or a picture of a covenant, and it kind of reminds us of what the covenant entails. For example, if we look back to the book of Genesis, where uh, God sent a flood to the earth to destroy all the inhabitants of the earth, um, then After that, he made a promise, a covenant, that never again would he wipe out all the people on the earth with a flood. And then he had a symbol of that covenant, a ratifying oath sign, which was the rainbow. So that every time the rainbow was seen in the sky, people could look up and say, never again is God going to destroy the earth with a flood. So it was a reminder, it was a symbol, it was a picture of God's covenant to mankind. And marriage has one of those ratifying uh, oath signs. And it's sex. Well, things got a little awkward. But listen for a moment. I mean, you look at even our marriage traditions today. Traditionally, the bride and groom will make the vows to one another. And then they'll seal the deal or ratify that vow on their wedding night or thereafter. And it's a symbol that I'm giving all of myself to you without holding anything back. 
And it's a symbol that's done repeatedly throughout marriage as a renewal of that marriage covenant that each time that uh, act is initiated, it's saying to your spouse, I am committed to you and to you alone. And so that's why Christians believe sex is so powerful. It's not simply something fun to do. It's not just something to make babies. It's something that has the force of marriage. It's something that unites couples together as husband and as wife. So there you have the vow and the oath sign, the vow before God. I'm going to be with this person. I'm going to care for this person. And then the oath sign, the sex, that kind of seals the deal and is a reminder of that covenant. So with that understanding, we can take a look at our passage that we're going to be looking at for just a few minutes today. So Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1, says this. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up to him and in order to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him. Is it lawful to divorce your wife? Now, what the Pharisees are asking here is not simply, is it ever permissible to divorce your wife? Are there any exceptions to the rule to divorce your wife? They're asking something that's a little bit more, uh, a little bit deeper. And it's implied in the passage and in the parallel passages it's spelled out. But when the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they say, is it okay to divorce your wife? What they're actually saying is, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? See, the the Pharisees had these two schools of thought. And it was all based upon this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So the kind of debate hinged on what this word indecency really meant. And so they would have these debates among themselves. The school of Shammai said that indecency meant uh, sexual unfaithfulness. If a wife committed adultery, then that was grounds for divorce. But the school of Hillel said that indecency could really mean anything. That if if in any way a wife displeased her husband, um, that there could be a divorce, a legal grounds for divorce. So based upon how Jesus responds, it appears that these were the people from the school of Hillel who come to him and say, is it okay to divorce your wife for any reason? She overcooks the meal, some way fails to please him. Notice, too, that that, uh, when the Pharisees talk about, they talk mainly about a man leaving his wife. When Jesus, he talks about 
a, a, a man leaving his wife and also a wife leaving the man. But when Jesus responds, he says, what does Jesus say? Or what does Moses say? Sorry. And they say, Moses allowed a, a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus responds and he says, in essence, you're asking the wrong questions. Why are you looking for a way out? If God has joined a couple together, if God has in creation made male and female and brought them into this covenant union called marriage, then why are you trying to tear it apart? Now, most pastors, when they, if they're going to marry someone, they do premarital counseling, and I'm the same way. Um, so imagine a couple comes into my office, and we're kind of walking through some things, talking about some things. And the guy says, well, I have one question for you. I've been really thinking about this a lot. Um, let's say this whole marriage thing doesn't work out. Um, what's the easiest way for me to get out of this? That's, that's the wrong question. I don't, think, I don't think marriage is a good idea for you if you're asking that question. If you're saying, I'm committing to this person for life, to death do us part, and you're asking, how can I get out of this? It seems like there's a little contradiction here. And so Jesus says, yeah, it was permitted during the time of Moses because of their hardness of heart. It was permitted during that time, and that was to kind of minimize the effects of people's sin. But that's not God's intention. That's not what God planned from the beginning. And then he kind of goes on and he redefines what adultery is. He says in verse 11 and 12, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This might be a little bit hard for us to understand, but given what we talked about when we talked about what marriage involves, those two bonds, the vow and then the oath sign, the covenant oath sign, Remember, the vow is the verbal covenant before God. And the only thing that can break that verbal covenant is a legal document, divorce. So, guy is eating dinner in the ancient world. His wife uh, burns the chicken a little bit. So, he's like, that's it. I'm done. I'm getting a divorce. So, he kind of deals with the vow aspect of the marriage. And so, he looks at Deuteronomy 24 and he interprets it, well, I have a reason. She's a bad cook. And now I'm free to go find a good cook. I can find a good wife who can cook well. Jesus says, you're doing that. You're trying to find a way out. But there's another bond too. That oath sign. That covenant oath sign, sex. And sex is something that bonds people together. And that's why for many who, are, uh, who have been sexually promiscuous... Um, it's difficult because sex is a bonding act. It's not supposed to be torn apart. And the only way that that bond is broken is by adultery. So when either husband or wife sleeps with somebody else, that sexual union is broken. Because when you sleep with someone else, in essence, you're saying, I'm committing to you and to you alone. I'm forsaking all other allegiances. In essence, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16 talking about the situation of people in, uh, in the church sleeping with prostitutes. He said, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So the guy gets a divorce, goes and marries someone else, sleeps with her. And then when he does that, the sexual union is broken. He's committing himself to another and, in essence, committing adultery. 
Jesus says, you're the one who's divorcing your wife. You found what you feel is a good reason. She overcooked her meal. You think that's a good reason. You think you've found a way out to find another spouse. But when you're doing that, you're committing adultery. She's not leaving. She hasn't committed adultery. You're committing adultery and trying to find a way out. You can't just say, I got the paper. I'm all good. So the question arises, of course, is is divorce ever permissible? And the answer is yes. Situations where about a spouse, uh, where there's abandonment, where the spouse is just like, I'm checking out. There's nothing, nothing we can do about that. Of course, I don't, don't believe that God would ever want us to stay into a relationship where severe abuse is happening. But apart from those things, the only way that the marriage bond is broken in God's eyes is by sexual unfaithfulness. When a spouse commits adultery. Because when someone does this, they're in essence saying, I'm done, I'm committing myself to this other person. So that's the, that's the way that, uh, that's the exception, so to speak. And it doesn't mean that divorce has to happen after that. Sometimes couples are able to reconcile, but it's permissible if the party who was harmed seeks a divorce. Now we know that Jesus permits this exception, and of course the exception of abandonment. And we know that from uh, the book of Matthew, how Jesus talks about the exception. And so he would kind of fall closer to the school of Shammai. But uh, we know that from other parts of Scripture. But from this passage, we probably wouldn't even be able to tell that. We don't even see any exceptions in this passage. Now, why doesn't Mark include any exceptions in this passage? Is it because there's no exceptions that exist? No, I don't think that's the case. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. But I, don't, I think he doesn't include these exceptions because they are what they are. They're exceptions. They're not the rule. That's not, it's not God's intention. It happens. And for those of us who have been through a divorce, it, there's exceptions when that happens. But that's not what God has intended. It's not normal. It's not what we're supposed to strive toward. It's not supposed to be something that happens to just about everybody. So again, when I look at this passage, I think what Jesus is trying to communicate is that you shouldn't be trying to look for ways out of what God has brought together. In other words, we should stop thinking about leaving and start thinking about loving. We should stop thinking about leaving and start thinking about loving. And again, this isn't an absolute statement. You know, if you're in a situation that's abusive, that's not something God wants you to keep taking abuse. If there's been uh, marital unfaithfulness, that's something that is a very sensitive issue that has to be worked out. I'm not saying that this applies to every single circumstance, but I am saying that this is what God's intention is at the beginning. And this is what God wants for every marriage. That God wants us to start thinking about loving. The culture that we're living in says that when things get tough, we should just check out. It's not just about marriage. It's about every area of life. It's, you know, we go to a church and if it starts to get messy, if we get in a disagreement with somebody, if we don't like this or that, it's like, well, we'll just go find another church. If we're in a relationship with somebody else, a friendship, and the friend offends us, they're like, well, uh, I don't really want to deal with this. I got enough I'm dealing with already. So I'll just check out. I'll just try to avoid them, try to keep from seeing them. I mean, and then we do do it with marriage. We have trouble with our marriage, and we're like, well, 
I might as well just find someone who's going to make me happy. Imagine if Jesus took that mindset. He comes to the earth and people, for the most part, don't believe in him. He pours himself out for mankind, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees continually try to trip him up. Continually try to get him to fail. Then the crowds end up condemning him, condemning him to the point of the cross. As he's being beaten, as he's being brutalized, as his hands are being nailed to the cross, imagine if he said, this is too much, I'm checking out, I'm leaving. That's not what Jesus did. Tim McKellar in his book, The Reason for Mar- or the Meaning of Marriage, says this, When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And that's why we can love people in the midst of struggle. That's why we can choose to stay. That's why we can think about loving rather than leaving, because that's what Jesus did for us. But the amazing thing is that when we do that, when we think more about loving than leaving, ironically, we point people back to Jesus. John thirteen thirty four to 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, that's what is to characterize people who are believers in Jesus. This is to apply to all areas of our life, with our friends, with our family, and yes, to marriage. That as we live our lives as believers, we see Jesus who left everything for us. We see Jesus who stayed in the midst of a difficult circumstance where it would have been easier to check out. And we see that he was thinking all the while about loving. And as we see him doing that, we can stop thinking about leaving and start thinking about loving. And as we do that, in turn, we point people back to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that even in the midst of a difficult circumstance, you were there for us. You didn't leave when it got difficult. And God, I just pray that you just be with us as a church, as a culture, that we would be people who think first and foremost about loving, about loving those around us, even in the midst of difficulty. I think of the Christians of old who, When everyone else was running away, they were running into the midst of difficulty to help those who are in need. God, I pray that we would be people like that. Who, because of your sacrifice and what you've poured out on us in the Holy Spirit, have the strength to stay, to love, to pour out ourselves for those around us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.